Thank you, Bill Maynard, for preaching last week on the cross of Christ. Today, we're going to talk about, you might be thinking, the resurrection, sort of. We're going to talk about the burial of Jesus Christ from John 19. So if you'll stand with me in honor of God's Word. Verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Now, Bill Maynard reminded us of something very important in Christian nomenclature. The language that we use. The cross of Christ refers also to His resurrection. The cross and the resurrection, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we see as Christians as a singular event, two sides, two parts, to a singular event and to the singular saving work of Jesus Christ and to the clear message of the gospel of that saving work. Cross is not separated from resurrection. Cross and empty tomb go together as the saving event of the gospel. The point is that the, the cross refers to a crucifixion and the cross we use as a category for all of Christ's saving work, the saving event of Jesus Christ in which he died and experienced, including the resurrection and the purpose for his work on earth. Now here's something interesting. When we read the Gospel of John, and also Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these are the Gospels for accounts of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection. When we read that, all four of them give us the details about the burial of Jesus. Now, we might be tempted to say, well, the burial is just a, a transition. It doesn't really mean much. It's just you've got to get from the cross to the resurrection, so I guess you've got to have a burial, so let's just say it's a burial and move on. And I think I've probably yielded to that temptation. In fact, I was thinking this week, I don't, I don't remember specifically, uh, preaching specifically on the burial. I've certainly preached about the burial, but probably, as I was almost tempted to do this week, connected to the resurrection. Burial so I can get on to resurrection. But consider this. All four of the gospel accounts 
give considerable, considerable information about the burial. And the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, he said, I'm going to remind you of the gospel. Very important. I'm reminding you of the gospel. Here's the gospel that I delivered to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and he was buried. He puts that phrase in there, that detail in there, that event of the burial. And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then in writing about the Christian life, the life that we live by faith in Jesus in Romans chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 2, Paul said that we are buried with Christ in baptism and now raised up with him. So what might we gain today from the New Testament's insistence that we remember that Jesus was buried? Well, the way John presents it in the passage that we just read, our attention is drawn to two things. <clears throat> First, our attention is drawn to two men. The two men who attended to the body of Jesus. And second, our attention is drawn to the burial of Jesus' body in a new tomb. From these two men, we get hints of the impact of the cross of Jesus upon their lives and ours. From these two men, we get hints of the new life, the new identity, the new pursuit that we experience when we come to see the cross. And from the new tomb, we get hints of the newness that Christ brings when he is raised from the dead. The tomb, we see, we will see, was occupied because there was a death, and the tomb must be occupied before it can be emptied in a resurrection. So we have to talk about the burial of Jesus. Let's consider it. First, John points out the two men who cared for and buried the body of Jesus. Verses 38 through 40. Now these two men stand out. They have names. They're given names. You know, not every important figure, but not every figure in the New Testament or even in the Bible is given a name. Or we're not, uh, let us know the name. But here we know their names. Joseph and Nicodemus. Other people knew them. And now we know them. These two men actually saw the crucifixion. They saw it up close. How do we know that? Because they knew the crucifixion was going to happen before it happened. How do we know that? Because they, these two men, were a part of the deliberations that went on in the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, about what to do with Jesus. These two men knew before, and they knew more than Jesus' disciples knew. After the cross, before the resurrection, 
during that little window on a Friday, they found new courage. And they identified with Jesus by taking care of his dead body. First, there was Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea is a city in Judea. And we have to go to the other Gospels to learn a lot of details about him. The other Gospels, this is what we learned. We learned that Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. And he owned the tomb. We learned that he was a righteous man. He was looking for the kingdom of God. Joseph wanted spiritual renewal for Israel. He loved God. He wanted to see God restore the people of Israel, God's people, to worship, to devotion, to obedience, to their true identity and purpose as a light for the nations. We see that Joseph was a member of the Jewish council, as I said, called the Sanhedrin. These people ruled along with the high priest over the religious life of the Jews. And we know from Luke that Joseph did not agree with the plot to put Jesus to death. He, along with Nicodemus and probably some others, were simply outvoted. Mark 15 tells us, uses the phrase, that Joseph took courage. And he went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. It took courage for Joseph to go to Pilate and ask for the body. And John tells us why it took courage and why it is that Joseph had to take courage, verse 38, because he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. He was a disciple. He wasn't yet a public disciple. He was quiet about it. He was holding back. He didn't know if he should identify or not. He was thinking about it. Possibly you've had a season of your life like that. Maybe you're like that now. You're wondering, but you're there, but you're not quite. You're, you see, that's where he was. Why was he secret? Fear. Fear of who? The Jews. Who are the Jews? Well, here, they are the religious leadership. Not every Jewish person. Jesus had many followers, devoted people who were Jewish. But this refers to the religious leadership. Priests and scribes and Pharisees, the council. And Joseph feared. He feared because he was a part of that Jewish leadership. He feared because this was his life. He had given himself to this. Yes, he was a righteous man. And he wanted the kingdom of God. And he really did love God. But he was also human. <laughs> he was human. And so he felt it. He felt the pressure. Maybe you love Christ. But when you spend time with family or friends who don't know Christ and don't have the love of Christ that you have and you start to look and feel and sound and act a little differently than they do and you start to feel the pressure maybe they put it on you maybe they don't but you feel it and you say well I shouldn't feel this but you're human 
Of course you're going to feel it. Awkwardness is no sin. And he feared. The Jews could have removed him from his position. They could even excommunicate him from the synagogue. They actually threatened to do so. We read earlier in John chapter 9. The religious leadership said, if anyone confesses Jesus Christ, he will be put out of the synagogue. Now you might think, big deal. No, that's a big deal. Take the whole center of your life, whatever that is, family, a group of friends, a church, whatever, the center of your life. And the threat is you confess Jesus and you're out. And that's what Joseph was feeling. And so he is counting the cost. I appreciate the fact that he counted the cost. I appreciate the fact that he spent a little bit of time wondering if he was going to really follow through with all of this. And he did. He found courage. And he asked Pilate for Jesus' body. The secret disciple could remain hidden no longer. He is now public. Now there is Nicodemus. He's the second man. Nicodemus, you'll remember, if you have read John, if you haven't, let me tell you, back in chapter 3, Nicodemus was a religious leader, and he came to Jesus by night. That's just a few years earlier than what's happening here at uh, at the crucifixion and the burial. Nicodemus also wanted to talk about the kingdom of God because Jesus told him, Unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. That's the born-again language that Christians use. It's not weird language. We get it from Jesus. You must be born again. We're told in John chapter 7 that Nicodemus is also a member of the Jewish council and that when they first started to plot the death of Jesus, Nicodemus stood up to them. Now, he also takes courage. He joined Joseph in caring for the body of Jesus by bringing the spices for the burial. The Jews did not embalm. The Egyptians did. It's a big deal. The Egyptians embalmed. The Jews did not. What the Jews did was they wrapped the body in lots of spices around the body with linen as a, before they would bury. So Joseph and Nicodemus, here they are. They are acting together. I love that scene. I love that scene. They're acting together. They're acting together. You are together. You know that, don't you? The person you're sitting next to might need your encouragement. The infusion of courage. Not by reprimand and shame and rebuke, but by, I'll go with you. I'll go with you to Pilate. I'll I'll bring the spices. I'll join you. They're together. They're they're giving courage to each other. Give me courage, congregation, if I get weary. And receive it from each other and from me when you do. We need this. Okay, here's the question. There's Joseph and Nicodemus. Here's the question. Why are Joseph and Nicodemus here in the account? That's the first question. Why are they here in the account? I'm going to ask you in a moment, why are they here in the, at this point in their lives? But first, why are they here in, this, in the account? Let the record show that two members of the Jewish council, the same council that decided that Jesus must die, 
two members of that council took the body of Jesus, verified that it was dead. He was not unconscious. He was dead. And they wrapped him in spices and cloth, and they put him in a tomb that was dug from the side of a rock hill. And when they put him in there, they rolled a a stone over the entrance of that tomb. Let the record show that the tomb was occupied with a dead body. It was occupied with the dead body of Jesus of Nazareth. And only his body, because no other body had ever been laid there. Verse 41. Let the record show that so that it may be established that it was this very same Jesus of Nazareth who rose from the dead and exited that tomb on a Sunday morning following the Friday that they put him there. Why are they here in this account? To confront the rumors that he was really not dead. Or they didn't bury him. Or that his disciples stole away his body. No, here's the record. But why are Joseph and Nicodemus here at this point in their lives? Like, that's why John wrote about them. But why did they go? They had everything they could possibly have given their times. The Jews are under Roman occupation. But these two had risen to a level that they had everything possible given the times. They were a part of the Jewish council in the Roman Empire with wealth and power and position and righteousness. Now, they are caring for the body. In fact, they're asking for the body. Pilate didn't say, hey, you take the body. They said, Pilate, please give us the body. The dead body of a carpenter turned teacher from Nazareth, charged with blasphemy against God, and known for making statements like, tear down the temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Or, another one he said was, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood if you're going to have life. And another one, before Abraham was, I am. Why are these two men risking everything to identify with somebody like that? Answer. Because something happened to cause them to value Jesus. Something happened to cause them to see the worth of Jesus. Something happened that would lead them to identify with Jesus so as to risk everything. The vision and the sight of Christ crucified was a catalyst for them to step out of the secrecy, out of the shadows, out of the night, and to come and claim the body of Jesus. Something about seeing Jesus on the cross made him worth the risk in their minds. And that's why we have said now for several weeks here at Grace 
vision, spiritual sight is a powerful component in our faith and in our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. We must see Jesus with the eyes of our heart. And they did. They saw him and they saw the cross. That vision of Jesus dying on the cross, they did not understand it fully. Let's be very honest and clear. They did not understand it fully. Things are being hinted at all along the way. However, that vision of Jesus on the cross crucified went to work on their minds, their affections, their will, doing something in them to cause them to take courage and then to take Christ and then to identify themselves as one of His. May the Lord give us this vision. May the Lord give us this vision. How do we love Christ? How do we have courage for Christ? How do we stand for Christ? How do we hope in Christ? How are we faithful to Christ? Nothing is more powerful than the clear vision of Jesus Christ crucified for us. That's what's happening here. It's not complete. The resurrection hasn't happened, but it's happening nonetheless. I pray you'll see Christ. I hope you can see him dying dead for you on the cross. No, he's not there. But he was. He did it, and you can see it. That's what got them there. A preacher about a century ago said, of Joseph and Nicodemus. They believe in Jesus now. They do. They're believers. They're disciples. They love Jesus now. They love him. They love him enough to go get his body and care for his dead body. But they do not yet have hope. How can that be? Because there is not yet a resurrection. He's still in the tomb. They put him there. They don't have a resurrection to remember, to look back on. So that's another reason that they're here. It's another reason that John puts them here. It's another reason that we need to read about them here. They were there to put Jesus in a new tomb. Do you see that phrase? In a new tomb, verse 41. They were there to put Jesus in a new tomb so that when he was raised from it, they will now have hope in the newness of Christ. Christ who is now alive. And he'll bring the newness with him. They needed and we need an occupied tomb of a crucified Christ to look back on so that we can know and gain hope that there's an empty tomb that Christ came out of. They verified that he was dead. They testified that he's now alive and they are going to experience the newness of life. So that brings us to the second part. John gives us hints right here. We're just a few verses away and a few hours away, a few days away from a resurrection. But even in the burial, John is giving us hints of the newness that will spring forth from this new tomb when Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Verse 41, close at hand to Golgotha, 
the place of the skull where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. Well, that's why Mary, we're going to read next week, that's why Mary at the re on Resurrection Sunday, when Jesus spoke to her and said, woman, thought he was a gardener because they were in the garden. And I suppose he was the gardener of this garden with a new tomb that he came up out of. There was a garden in Genesis 1 through 3. Adam was the gardener. Adam sinned, and he brought a curse, and he was removed from the garden. And here we're in another garden, and there's a gardener. And he's been raised from the dead just a bit, not yet, yet but just a bit. John's hinting at it. I'm, I want to preach it. You can tell. I've got to wait till next week. It's a garden of newness. There's a new tomb there. And the work to reverse the curse in the first, of the first garden is now both finished and beginning. It's finished and beginning and continuing. Jesus said it is finished, but here he is coming up in just a bit out of the grave, and he's going to continue it on. Verse 41, there's a new tomb there in which no one had yet been laid. So they laid him there. Why? Well, John tells us it's almost the Sabbath, and they've got to prepare for the Sabbath, and they're in a hurry. Uh, it's, it's close by, and they have, they've got to, they got to get on with this. They're thinking logistics. They're thinking details. They're thinking, where, where can we put the body? It's almost 6 p.m. When the Sabbath starts, we've got to get going. Oh, there's one over here, Joseph. I, I own one just, just right down the path here. Let's go. And they put him in there. But in a few days, they're going to see that this was more than a convenient tomb. This was a significant tomb. The new, the never used, but now the occupied tomb is going to be the empty tomb. The burial in a tomb, according to the scriptures, still speaks. What does the burial of Jesus in a new tomb tell us? First, it tells us that Jesus was really dead. Jesus suffocated as Bill told us last week. His legs were not broken. You break the legs of a man hanging on a cross so he can't push up and gasp for air anymore. They came to Jesus. He was already dead. He'd already suffocated. They did not break his legs. These are professional executioners. They did not make a mistake. They knew when a man was dead and when a man wasn't. Joseph and Nicodemus prepared his body. They knew he was dead. They would not have wrapped him in 75 pounds of spices and linen cloth without knowing that he was dead. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died. And that's why there is a burial. A death is necessary. It's necessary for the atonement of sin. He's buried because he's dead and he died to forgive us of our sins because he paid the penalty for it. And he yelled out on the cross, it is finished. But a death is also necessary before there can be a resurrection. Because while it was finished, our sins are paid for, it continues, the newness will come. Second, the burial, the tomb of Jesus, tells us that Jesus actually rose from the dead, materially, historically, in time and place. 
He is no longer there. The resurrection is necessary to bring a dead person to life, but the resurrection is necessary to bring newness of life to all who believe in the one who died and was raised again. Third, the burial of Jesus and the tomb of Jesus show us that it was not any other person who was dead and buried and raised from that tomb because no one had ever been laid in that tomb. He was alone in there. It was the historic, real person who had a name, Jesus, from a real town called Nazareth. The historicity of the gospel events is absolutely essential. If you ever think, oh, you know, it's the meaning that matters. The events matter. Real, material, flesh, blood, tomb, rock, dirt, in a garden, on a map, a dead body raised from the dead after being buried there. Number four, it shows the tomb, the burial showed that it was for another person that Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised because he took another person's place in that tomb. The grave was dug for another. And Jesus went in in that other person's place. And you and I are the other. Jesus was buried for us. He died for us, and by faith in Christ, we die to the old self. He was buried for us, and by faith in Christ, through baptism, we are buried. And he was raised for us, and by faith in him, we are raised with him to walk in newness of life. This is what a Christian is. A Christian is dead. I love the way Bill pointed out last week. He not only died for our sins, he took us to the cross, and we, the old self, the condemned self, died with him. And we are buried with him, Paul says, through baptism. And then we are raised with him into life. This is a, this is a Christian. This is, what, this is the picture of Christian baptism. It's beautiful. And I think this is number five. It shows this tomb. This burial shows that Jesus makes the tomb new for we who are in him by faith. I have my grave purchased. I know that sounds crazy. You say, why would you do that? Well, let me, it's crazier. I did it when I was about 32. And you're thinking, are you morbid? No. No, they sent me an ad, and I got two for one. <laughs> Isn't that right? So Beth got one with me. So we're ready to roll. And Jesus has made that new for me. Death is a temporary bodily experience for the Christian. It's a temp it, death will be a temporary experience for my body. The grave is a temporary holding place for the body 
of a Christian. Jesus makes it so and will show it so when he calls me and you in Christ, calls us out of our grave with new bodies that are fit for a consummated kingdom. That's what the tomb tells us. Jesus is making all things new, Revelation says. And our new bodies are going to inhabit a new heaven and a new earth. Six, the tomb, the burial, show us that all of this was in accordance with the Scriptures. This, none of this is by accident. None of this is plan B. It's plan A. There's only one plan, the plan of God's plan A. Always has been, always will be. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so the man, the son of man, must be in the earth buried. Three days. Isaiah 53, verse 9. He, this suffering servant, Messiah, was with a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man, in his death. Numerous other prophecies and proclamations show that this was God's plan, even down to the burial. The purposes of God will not be thwarted. And the purpose for seeing this in our lives is that we would absolutely trust in the sovereignty and in the grace of God. And then, finally, number seven, the tomb, the burial, gives us hope. Hope to go with our faith and our love. Joseph and Nicodemus, they believed Jesus at this point as much as they could believe him. They believed everything that he had revealed that they understood. They believed him. And they loved him enough to take the body and care for it. And on the Sunday, they had hope. They had hope to go with their faith and love because they knew Christ was alive from that new tomb they put him in. What was the future of Joseph and Nicodemus in the council? We don't know. We're not told. Did they get kicked out? We don't know. What was their future in the church? We're not sure. It's amazing how much the Bible doesn't tell us about the future of people who meet Jesus. I, I'm, I'm the guy that's always like, well, what happened next? <laughs> we don't know. But whatever it was, it was a future of hope. Maybe it's best that God doesn't tell us what happened next. Because then we would say, well, that's the way it's going to happen with me. And it might not. But we can share the hope. They took courage. They took his body. They prepared it with spices. They laid it in a new tomb, in a garden. And now that once briefly occupied tomb is empty, they and we have hope. Surely, surely the resurrected Lord Jesus, alive Lord Jesus, is making all things new. Surely, he is going to return. So now, let's have hope with our faith and our love. I hope you will believe the message today. I hope God will move upon you to become a Christian. And if so, I hope you will tell us so that we can talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. And I hope, brothers and sisters, that you will meditate long and hard over the cross, the burial, and the resurrection. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It's always, always true and right and good.